All right. <clears throat> well, the volume was supposed to be a lot louder than that, so I'm sorry. It was a little bit uh, underwhelming, but that was a video that was intended to show you some key scripture about what Jesus taught us about this thing we call communion. You know, when I was growing up, I don't know about you, but I was always perplexed by communion. In fact, it was one of those things we did in the church that I just went along with it because I was supposed to. But the truth of it was, even when they explained it to me, I didn't really understand what this little piece of bread and this little thing of juice had to do with my salvation. What I even couldn't understand more, what I could understand even less was, I would see some of the grown-ups around me go up to communion, and they would grab it, they would sit down, and they would begin to weep. You know that kind of weeping where they're not like openly crying, but just shaking a little bit? And I'm thinking, wow, that bread must be so good. Because they're like crying. Is it like sugary? And I'd go up and I'd, it's a little piece of saltine cracker. And I think, what makes a person emotional about this? And I wrestled with it for a really long time growing up because the question resounding in my childish mind was, what's the big deal? What's everyone so worked up about? Now, I wonder if that describes the way you ever felt about communion. I wonder if that describes the way you sometimes feel even today. You know, communion is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's unique to Christianity. I don't see any other religion practice something that has this kind of symbolism and this kind of disproportionate effect on its followers and participants compared to what it is we're actually doing. I don't know if you come from a more liturgical background. Maybe you're used to taking communion every Sunday. And if that's the case, you're probably starving for communion at our church because we do it, if we're lucky, every other month. And so you're probably used to taking the, the, the elements on a weekly basis. And maybe you come from a different kind of church background where you take communion twice a year on Easter and Thanksgiving or something like that. And so here it seems like we do it way too often. You know, I don't think the frequency is quite the issue, but whether we do it once or 52 times a year, the real issue is this. When you take communion, are you really participating in the most important aspect of what is happening in the room? Are, are you engaged with God? Do you understand what the significance of it is? Are there going to be times, and I'm not going to guarantee you'll feel this way every time you take communion, but are there times when the meaning of communion is so powerful and overwhelming that you actually begin to get emotional about it? One of the key verses or passages that we look at to teach about communion is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to invite you to turn with me there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, if you turn to the second half of the Bible where it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, and then you will have 1 Corinthians. All right? When you look at verse 23 to 29, 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Try to follow along as I do that. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Why don't we bow for a second? Because I'm, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm already sensing that this is such a familiar topic for some of you. You're, you're kind of preemptively getting ready to be bored. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us, can we? God, many of us have taken communion dozens of times and even heard this passage addressed. But I pray for a fresh blowing of the wind of your Holy Spirit now. Rattle these old, tired bones of ours and pour water upon dry hearts. I pray, God, that you will help us receive from you now and give us life through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I look at this passage and three words powerfully jump out at me that are a part of the whole communion experience. And I want to explore those three words with you this morning. The first word I see jump out at me is the word remember. The word remember. Now, I, I thought about what picture. I found a bunch of very serene pictures of crosses silhouetted against the sunset. They looked almost pleasant. And I thought, maybe I'll put one of those pictures up. But then I decided to put this picture up from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I can tell you that as I prepare my messages, I leave the picture up next to me while I'm writing the point. Because the picture drives the emotional aspect of what I'm trying to get at. And that picture was very hard for me to look at over and over and over. The makeup and special effects in that film were incredible. It really did not spare us the grotesque nature of the suffering of Christ. And I had to stare at that for a really long time this week. But I can't think of any other picture that would do justice to what it is that Jesus is calling us to remember. He's not asking us to remember some bread and juice. He's asking us to remember what those elements actually represent. So let me begin by asking you a question, and you can fade that slide out for a moment. Do you remember your first day at your present job? Do you remember what it felt like to hear from the person who interviewed you that you got the job? Do you remember how great that felt? Are you guys alive out there? Do you remember? I mean... You all want to be unemployed. Do you remember what that felt like when the guy called you and said, oh, we're so happy to tell you, you got the job. I remember when I heard that kind of stuff, I would literally scream. I'd jump up. I'd like high-five nobody in particular. Just, it, it was such a great feeling to hear that. And you get in your car and you Google the, the, the place and you get there and it's a whole new facility. You're not even sure where the best parking spots are, where the most strategic places to sit for lunch, where the best restaurants are. You're meeting all these new people and you still haven't made up your mind whether you're going to hate them or like them. You know what I'm talking about? Hi, how are you? I'm going to eventually be really annoyed by you. You know, you don't even, it's all brand new. All the procedures, the paperwork, everything is fresh. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to turn this place upside down. I'm going to be the best worker they ever hired. I'm going to show them what a servant of the Lord can do in this place. I'm going to rock. And, and you've you got all these wonderful thoughts. Now fast forward. How do you feel about that place now? Some of you, you get physically sick when you pull into the parking lot. Oh, I hate this place. And you walk in the front door and there's a security guard who's kind of not even looking at you. Hey. you could, you'd be walking in with a nuclear missile or something. Hey. The smells... The sounds, 
the annoying nasal tone of your manager's voice and everything annoys you. Sit down at the familiar cubicle. Turn on your computer, the same desktop screensaver you've stared at for like the, the last year. The sound of the phone, everything starts to annoy you. It's all very, very old. How about the place you lived? Do you remember the first day you moved in? How excited you were? You're walking around with the real estate agent. Ooh, I can put my desk there and you can put your shelves there and all your books and you're all like so happy. And now you look at it and you go, this place is a dump. I don't feel like painting that wall. What's the point of painting this ugly place? We need a new home. Remember the first day, I'm, I'm getting a little vulnerable, but you remember the first day you came to this church? <laughs> You're like, oh, so much better than my last church. I got to check it out. I need a new place. And you were desperate for a place to call home. You needed a place where you could be excited again about living and about following Christ. And everything was great. The first couple sermons you heard, it was like music to your ears. Now it's just like, my Lord, he's still going. Is my watch broken? What's going on? Do you remember when you're meeting all these people thinking, are you going to be my next best friend? Are you going to be my next best friend? And now you're like, I don't like any of these people. Now, I'm being real cynical here. It's probably not quite that negative. But the point of all these questions is to show you something. We get used to stuff really fast. Stuff that once got our pulse going, it just makes us feel numb nowadays. It's something about human nature that when things get familiar, they grow stale for us. And no matter how much you loved it at first, it's not very long before things you were once excited about aren't that exciting. I mean, just think about how many dozens of examples there are. That car you thought you would never grow sick of and you're hoping someone will hit you now. That jacket you thought, if you just bought this jacket, it'll change my life now. It's got salt stains all over from rubbing against your car and you wouldn't even bother to wipe it off because you're like, I hate this jacket. Any of you guys there with me? You buy the Xbox, and then Xbox 360 comes out. Not that I could identify with that, but you know, that's the way it goes. Do you ever get the feeling that that's how you're starting to feel about being a Christian? You know, maybe like you're starting to lose sight of things. Things are getting old. Every sermon starts sounding like it's about the same thing. Every Christian seems like the same cookie-cutter, generic person, and you're getting annoyed. Things that once made you want to cry leave you feeling totally numb. Do you ever feel like that? That's good. That's a good reminder. Everyone silence your cell phones, please. Do you ever feel like that about following Christ? Like, I'm almost starting to forget why I care about this. Now, I'm not suggesting you're happy about that. Would you ever start to feel that way about being a Christian? I've been there. And let me tell you that if you're a pastor and you get to that place, it's terrifying. Oh, my goodness. I got to stand up here at this piece of wood and pretend like I believe this stuff passionately. And on those weeks where I'm struggling to remember, wow, it is really, really hard not to feel like a big fat liar up here. Don't get stumbled. You, you may never know from just looking at me when I'm having one of those weeks. It could be today. You never know. The point is I know. And I wrestle with that feeling. And, and the point is, in those moments, what we need more than anything is to remember something powerful. You know, in that upper room, 
First Corinthians 11 records for us, Jesus made a very strange request of his friends. He's not even gone yet. He's sitting right there and he's going, remember me. They're looking at him like, Jesus, what are we, idiots? You're right here. All right, let me, yeah, I still remember you. He's right there. He hasn't gone anywhere. But he's saying to them, there will come a time when I will not be with you anymore. And the most important thing you can do is remember me. And he, he knew that we were, we were not very good at abstract things. If you try to remember Jesus, I mean, what after all do you really picture anyway? And so he gave us some tangible symbols to show us, if you remember anything about me, these are some things you absolutely must remember on a regular basis. And he took a piece of bread, which is part of the dinner, a very handy illustration, and he broke it and he shared it with them. And he, he broke it partly because, you know, we're not going to all pass around one chunk of bread and bite it. He's distributing it, but he also broke it symbolically to show what would happen to him. And then he distributed wine in cups and he showed them these things are more than just bread and wine. They point to something that will be the foundation and bedrock of your entire spirituality from this point forward. Now, I thought about this for a while. Is Jesus calling, calling us to remember him because he's insecure? Have you ever been to camp and you got that one person who's always like, you better write me, don't forget me, okay? You swear you won't forget me. You promise you're going to get home and write to me. You know that insecure person who's constantly hoping you'll remember him because nobody ever remembers him. They're like, oh, please remember me. Is that the spirit in which Jesus, afraid we might forget, is telling us, oh, remember me, remember me, remember me? Not at all. They would learn just like we need to learn that Jesus calls us to remember because it is for our benefit that we should never forget upon what foundation our faith is built. And think about this question. What makes a person a Christian? What makes you a Christian? You know, you might have the right theolog- theological answers, but in practice, the way most Christians wear their faith, it's as if we believe that what makes us Christian is our lifestyle choices. The fact that I don't cuss as much as I used to. You still cuss plenty, don't you? At least in your heart. <laughs> And quite often behind the wheel of a car, we cuss. But not as much and as openly as we once did, perhaps. I put away pornography at least a couple times a week. I don't get as angry as I used to. I'm not a deviant in some weird way. I try not to watch NC-17 movies and... Blah, 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 blah. I try to pray before every meal. You know, we live as if what makes us Christians is the stuff that we do. Why is it then that the only time we, and think about it, because the only time we or even the people outside the faith ever challenge us, uh, us with this question, how can you call yourself a Christian is when we act in some way unbecoming of religious people. Right? It's as if we really believe that what makes us Christian is the way that we've chosen to live. Now listen, all those lifestyle choices, the fact that you might have once struggled with homosexuality and have now abstained from the practice of it, all those things are good things. The fact that I don't swear. I mean, if I swore as much as I used to, I couldn't be the pastor here. I used to swear like sailors would take seminars from me to learn how to swear, okay? That's how I used to cuss. It was an art form for me. I don't do it anymore, but in my sick, demented mind, I still can appreciate a good swear if it's strung together uniquely because that's who I am and that's who I used to be. The fact that we're changing is good. 
And it does describe something of what it looks like to be a Christian, but it is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is so simple. It is that Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed for you and all of that was freely offered upon you though you never deserved to be made the offer in the first place. Don't you just get so depressed when you see people who've lost the sparkle? The magic? You know, politicians who got into it because they wanted to govern well and and do justice change the world, and now all they care about is getting reelected, And it makes you just sick to your stomach to see these smarmy people who smile for the cameras and you know they're a real jerk in real life. They don't care about anything but getting back in that office the next term around. They do this to figure out which way the wind is blowing. They do what will be popular instead of what is right. And you get so frustrated because you think to yourself, why can't you just govern us Right? Do justice, stand for something, have some courage, take a risk. But they've forgotten why they got into it in the first place. Don't you get so depressed by actors who, when they were waiters, hoping to get a bit part in a television commercial, were so humble. And now that they're a superstar, they act like they were actually born out of a different kind of uterus than you and me. Like theirs is platinum plated and diamond encrusted or something. As if they don't go number two on the, on the toilet like the rest of us. As if they're somehow a different kind of person. And you feel so depressed by that. Like you lost the sense of wonder at how lucky you are to live the life that you live. The pro athlete for whom it's all about endorsement contracts. And getting a better salary. And getting more face time and air time and play time. And they've forgotten how much they used to just love playing the game. You know what I'm talking about? You see those guys because their contract is under negotiation, so they're on the basketball court just going, all right, whatever, let's get through this game. Like, you're a pro basketball player. Do you know how lucky you are? I cut off my left hand to have your life. Where's the magic, the sparkle? Have you forgotten why it's so great to be you? I think we all need to remember once in a while why it's so amazing to be us. What God has given us, what began at the foot of the cross, that makes us who we are. You know, there are times when I think I'm a Christian because I do all the Christian stuff right. And that's a lie, first of all. I don't really do it all right. But in my mind, I think I do. And then I take communion and I remember, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not a Christian because of my resume. In fact, God's not terribly interested in communion in all the stuff I did. He's not looking to be impressed. This is not a potluck supper, guys. The Lord's table is not a place where each of us brings a dish. This is a place where the Lord feeds us and he reminds us what it is that saved us. We need communion because it reminds us of the elemental nature of salvation at the foot of the cross. It puts us in touch with the time in our lives when we were wretched sinners and we came to know it for the first time in our lives. We looked at the cross and said, I'm not such a great person. Fine, I set goals in my life. I met them. I was once a size 20 and now I'm a size 4 and all that. And I'm a great person inside. I don't kick my children. I'm faithful to my husband or wife. I don't steal pens from the office. And you're thinking all these things. But there was a time once when anyone who is saved knew with absolute certainty, I am a wretch and I deserve condemnation and I do not deserve mercy. And you realized it that day. There were no illusions that I'm this perfectly well manicured person. 
I remember the day I got saved in August of 1984. I was heaving with sobs because I realized for the first time truly what I'm like. And I don't cry a lot, but I could not stop crying for like three hours that day. And that day, at the foot of the cross, I got it. I understood how I might be saved. And it had nothing to do with anything I would do for God. But I looked at the cross and I understood, just like you did, that his broken body and his shed blood is the only ticket to be admitted to this table. It's the only reason I'm a Christian. And if anyone ever asked you, and you go to Harvest Community Church, do not shame the name of Christ and offend the cross. If anyone ever asked you, what makes you a Christian? There is only one answer you must ever give them from your heart. I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ died for me. And he offered me everything when I deserved nothing. The only thing I did is I accepted it because I'm no idiot. I accepted it. How can you not? If you add anything else to that answer, you have grieved the heart of Christ. Last night, I had the privilege of preaching at Wheaton College. It's a pretty amazing school. I've traveled enough of the world to know that at least half of all the people I meet doing full-time missionary service have some relationship to Wheaton College. It's the most amazing place. I preached there among some students, and I saw something in their eyes I haven't seen in the mirror in a while. These guys are like in their early 20s, late teens. Some of them are 18, 19. And I asked them, do you love Jesus? Yes! It's like the rabbit. I'm like, whoa! And I looked at them last night. I said this, you guys actually believe you can change the world, don't you? And they're all like, yeah! Don't you? And I'm like, man, I used to feel that way. I still have flashes, but I need to remember. We all need to go back once in a while to remember where it started. What it felt like when you realized you were a wretched sinner and the broken body and shed blood of Christ was applied to you and you felt in your heart, I will do anything for him. I will do anything for him. Life is brand new because I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. Amen. And there's another word that really shimmers in this passage, just shines out. I mean, it's the word covenant, the word covenant. I wish I had a better picture to show you of what covenant looks like, but the best modern parallel I could find, it's not that, but if that's your car, why don't you go ahead and pay attention to that for a second there? Okay, and now if you guys could switch to that slide. Covenant. I, I, I wrestled with this for a while. How do I teach modern people what a covenant is? See, that's a contract. We're used to signing our signatures on things and not even reading what we're signing because we're thinking, if it's unreasonable, I'll just break it. <laughs> I don't care if it costs me money, if i got to go to jail. I just sign stuff. And we think our signature is some kind of bond. But in most most settings today, the worst that could happen to you if you break a contract is you'll go to jail for a while, right? That's the way it works. How do we understand the power and the impact of this word covenant for an ancient audience? And maybe the best way I could describe it is a covenant is something like a promise on steroids, okay? 
A covenant is like a promise on steroids, only the terms are death if you breach it. What you're saying is, I mean this promise so much that if I break it, I'm willing to die. How many promises have you made in your life that are that powerful, that serious? I made one to my wife, and I made one to God at my ordination. The promise I made to God at my ordination is that I will give up my life for the sake of the gospel. You put a gun to my head, I have no choice. I hope, I pray, I will honor the Lord at that moment. But that's a promise I made on pain of death. And I made the same promise to my wife. I would die for her. And I really mean that. I hope no one will hasten the occasion, but I'm willing. I'm willing. How many promises are there in operation in your life right now that are that serious? Jesus says something very interesting in verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that would have struck the ears of his Jewish convert audience very dramatically because he used the C word. He's now talking about something that has a special life all its own to a Jewish mind. You have to remember that in their past lives, in their history, they had some incredible covenants that were made between God and some of their leaders. One of the most important of those covenants is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It was a covenant that God made with Abraham just as he was being called out of his homeland to follow God's spirit into a new place and begin a whole new redemptive plan set in motion. So there you had it. He's saying to Abraham, if you will follow me, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I mean, and of course, in the beginning, he didn't talk about the stars. What he said was, I will make you into a great nation. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to us in a culture where it's really best to have as few kids as possible, right? How many people want to hear the promise, you're going to have like 30 kids? How many of you look to God and say, thank you for that? You'd be like, get out of here, what I do? Why me? But he's saying to Abraham, in a culture where children are a symbol of wealth and blessing, I'm not just going to give you a bunch of kids, I'm going to make you into a nation. You're going to have oodles and oodles of little ones running under your feet. It's hard to imagine with an American mindset that that's a good thing. But Abraham was bowled over with this promise. And it was so heartwarming and so encouraging. He said, God, I will follow you anywhere. And he struck out with his entire household. You have to understand, this is not a college student who can put all his stuff in a duffel bag and go. This is a very rich man. He uprooted an entire household, hundreds of servants, and he struck out to follow God. Now, after years and years of following this God, he looks at his wife, Sarah. She's used his oil of Olay, but the wrinkles are still setting. And he's like, Sarah, seriously, you're pretty old and crusty, and so am I. Look at us. God's given us his promise about kids. You're like 90-something. I'm like 90-something. And they began to have their doubts. They began to have their Some of us are in our 30s and single, and we're already having our doubts. Can you imagine being in your 90s, and you're like, when's the first kid coming? And Sarah's like, I don't think I could change diapers, man. I'm tired at 3 a.m. You know, at 3 p.m., I'm ready for bed. And here they are wondering if God's going to keep the promise. And God still remembers. And he pulls Abraham aside. In the middle of the night, he goes, Abraham, come outside with me for a second. Look at the night sky. And without city lights, the night sky is brilliant. It's full of stars. He says, see all those stars up there? Your descendants truly are going to be more numerous than those stars. 
And it says Abraham heard that promise and he believed it. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you see how that foreshadows the salvation process for us? God makes an offer, a promise to Abraham that Abraham does not deserve to hear. What did he do to earn this wonderful promise? Nothing. God just picked him and gave it to him. And then Abraham started to have his doubts. And God said, no, it's really true. And Abraham did nothing more than believe the promise of God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The only righteous thing Abraham did is believe the promise that God made. And that's why the word covenant is so powerful for us. And then what he did next is really astounding. He says, Abraham, I want you to prepare a a covenantal ceremonial sacrifice. And here's what that means. You take a bunch of animals. If you're kind of sensitive or queasy, this is going to be a little gross, but you take a big knife and you hack these animals in half along the the axis of their spinal cord, their, their, their backbone. You just literally... Split the animal in half, like, you know, there's that two halves. And then you take the two halves of all these animals and you lay them on their sides, matching each other half and half, and leave a little pathway in between them. And this is a very common practice in those days. When two people were settling upon a very important covenant, they would do this, the blood would be soaking the pathway in between, and then they would make a promise and they would walk in the pathway between these split animals as if to symbolically say... That if either one of us breaches this contract, may we be split in half just like these animals who have lost their lives and shed their blood. If either one of us should break our end of this bargain, we deserve to die and we acknowledge it fully. But an amazing thing happens. After the animals are set up and the pathway is soaked in blood, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. He's saying, Abraham, right now, whatever is about to transpire here, you don't have any active part to play in it. This is now my thing. And with with Abraham lying prone on the ground, God himself walks in between the path of those split animals. Do you see the power of that image and how it foreshadows Christ? In those days, if two equals were making a contract, they would both walk through. But if if someone of clear authority like a king was making a covenant with one of his subjects, the king would never walk through. But the subject always had to. The message was clear. The king can enforce the promise, but you lowly subject cannot enforce it with me. So you're the only one who has to pay a price. But what God did was reverse it. It was as if to say, Abraham, you don't even need to bother walking through because you know and I know you're going to break this covenant. You know and I know that whatever noble promises you shout out in the midst of this inspiring moment, you are not going to be able to keep it. Haven't you been there before at a retreat or a revival meeting and say, Lord, I'm never going to sin again. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to share my faith with everyone around me. And God's like, that's so cute, but shut up because I know what you're feeling, but you know and I know that you're not going to follow through. You're going to try. I'm going to help you. But you know and I know that you're not going to make it. And someone's going to have to die. Because you're making a covenant with Almighty God on pain of death for breaching. What's amazing is that Abraham isn't even made to walk through it because even though he will violate it, he will not have to die. God himself passes through. And what he's saying is, for your breach, I will die. For your breach of the contract, I will die so that you can live. Do you see how that points us to Jesus Christ and what he did on that day? The same way it was with Abraham, it is with us and Jesus. The promise of God is entirely one-sided. 
What did Abraham do to participate in that promise? Did he promise anything meaningful to God? Nothing at all. What did you and I do at the foot of the cross? What did we promise that had any lasting power to save? I made lots of promises that day in August of 1984. I've broken every last one of them. It is entirely a one-sided promise. I think that's the meaning of communion. It points us to a covenant that has nothing to do with our ability to keep it. It points us to a covenant that has everything to do with God's faithfulness to keep it because we will fail. We are all of us walking failures, breachers of this contract. And God himself reminds us that his broken body and shed blood are for us because he knew we would fail to honor our end of it. In all the other religions, we feed the gods so that we can live. In this religion, God feeds us so that we can live. Do you see the powerful difference there? I told you earlier that this is not a potluck dinner. At this meal, you must come empty-handed. You do not carry into this place memories of all the good stuff you did. I've even heard preachers say this. As you get ready for communion, search your heart. If there's any dirty stuff in there, get rid of it because you dare not bring your sin to this table. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you talking about? What else can you bring to this table? You're going to whip out your resume and see here, Lord. I taught Sunday school for two years. I shared my faith with my neighbor. I donated a few bucks. Are you going to show him that? What would that really mean? At this table, you eat what God sets forth because it's life for you. Do you see that? Let me give you the last thing, and then we're going to go right into communion. The word examine jumped out at me. It's the best picture I can come up with. But in a way, that's really what we're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be examining your your heart. The lungs are much more visible, but the heart's back there. Am I right, doctors? Can you see a heart back there? It's kind of, it's there. Yeah, (laughs) the guy's not missing a heart. You're supposed to be checking your heart. In other words, like most tables, I mean, doesn't your mother's dinner table at home have some rules? Right? Wash your hands. Use your utensils. We're not barbarians. Don't eat with your hands. And we have all these rules. No talking about farts and boogers at the dinner table. Jeannie has all kinds of house rules at the dinner table. You don't get up in the middle of supper. You don't shout at the, you know, all these things. This table has rules. It has standards. This isn't a free-for-all buffet where you just run up like crazy people and just start gorging yourself. This is a sacred table, and there are standards. And so Paul rightly tells us that before you stand at this table and take the elements, you must examine yourself so that you do not take these things in an unworthy manner. There's a lot of ways you can interpret that. I'm going to give you two quick things that you should be thinking about every time you take communion to describe for you what an unworthy manner looks like. The first is this. Do you trust Jesus alone? Do you trust Jesus alone for your righteousness? Because the truth is, if you trust anything else, it is an offense to what these things symbolize. I went door-to-door evangelizing in seminary And I was astounded that almost everyone I talked to, when I asked them, hey, are you going to go to heaven? And if you think you are, on what basis do you believe that? And almost everyone said, it's because I'm a pretty good person. That's everybody's reasoning. 
because I'm a pretty good person. In other words, what they are trusting to be saved is that overall, on balance, they've done more good things than bad things. And there is a small collection of really bad things that will send you straight to hell, and they haven't done any of those. They never set anyone on fire. They never stolen from orphanages. So all those things are fine. I've never done those things, so I get to go to heaven. That's the reasoning. That is such an offensive thing to God. Because he sent his own son to die so that we wouldn't have to say that kind of nonsense ever again. His own son died so that we could live. And that's why to say that I trust anything other than his son grieves and offends the heart of God deeply. That's the reason why we do what we call fencing the table. Fencing the table is a theological expression for the fact that we tell people this is not a table for everyone. It is only a table for those who have trusted Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And if you're trusting anything other than Jesus, it is an affront to God to take these elements. There's no magical power. This is not super bread. It's just bread from Jewel. All right? It's made with good old-fashioned earthly ingredients. This is just Welch's grape juice. We've debated in the past about using real wine and we decided against it. But that's just grape juice. But what those things symbolize is the death and sacrifice of God's own son. And if you trust yourself or any other thing, you must not touch these elements. Can you imagine if we're buying a new house, my family, and Elijah donates his rock collection and goes, Dad, I give you all my precious rocks. He's got all these rocks that are so dear to him, collected over the years. And he goes, There. I donated. And I imagine that after that, he walks around boasting to all his friends, yeah, me and my dad bought this house. Me and my dad bought this house. Oh, yeah, I gave like hundreds of thousands of dollars. He gave me a bucket of rocks. We did it together, me and him. Do you understand what is set for you at this table? What this points to? There is nothing you can set on this table next to it that does justice. If you have duck orange and crowned rack of lambs, and you bring your red jello with marshmallows, does it sit there next to that dish and look right to you? Can you bring any of your good deeds and set it next to what Jesus has done and pretend me and him, we did it together? I'm good because of what Jesus did and because of what I've done. Don't ever, ever fall for that one. You are not good at all because of anything you did. Prophet Isaiah spoke truth when he said, even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags compared to what God has done for you. And it is only what he has done that washes you white as snow, though your sins were once as crimson. Empty your hands before you come to this place. Don't just empty your hands of sin. Empty your hands of all the things you're bringing to impress God, to curry his favor, to show him that you're not so bad after all. Put aside all those memories, those records of how many dollars you've given, how many hours you've served, how much you've endured for him. This is not a table where he wants to see your resume pulled out. This is a table where he feeds you, and that's the only thing that matters. And he said to us truly in John 6, 
that my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Eat and drink and then live. Let me give you one last thing you need to check in your heart. Because in a moment, we're going to invite you up for communion. But you have to have your head on straight about this. In the remaining portions of 1 Corinthians 11, the part I did not read for us, Paul delivers a very sharp rebuke to the Corinthians about the way they're living among one another. For them, communion was not this white-gloved ceremony. For them, it was just dinner with church friends. And they did it to remember Christ, but it was a meal, a real meal. And people were just turning into something terribly corrupt. Some people were just getting drunk. They loved communion because it was a time to just drink lots and lots of wine and somehow spiritualize it. Other people used it as a way of, of jockeying for reputation and prominence in the church. They would bring their very finest dishes and their finest meal and they would show everybody, I'm better than you. I can afford better meat than you, better bread than you. Some people were using that congregational meeting to continue sowing the seeds of division. And that's the part that grieved Paul and that grieved Jesus the most. Was that at the table of fellowship, people were living in bitterness and hatred towards one another. You see, the, the kitchen table is the place in every family where the family gathers. It's supposed to be the heart of a family, isn't it? You know, sometimes we catch ourselves because we're so busy disciplining the kids, we get to the point where we're like, don't talk, don't talk, just eat. As if it's some feeding trough, as if the only thing that's supposed to happen at a dinner table is like some military mess hall. The dinner table is the heart of a home. And you could tell a lot about a family by watching them eat dinner together. If I were a fly on the wall of your house, what would I see around the dinner table? Would I see a father preoccupied with other things, ignoring his family completely? A mother hysterically yelling at her kids because they're not eating properly? Kids just ignoring their parents? What would I see? At the dinner table, a family gathers. And it's a place where dialogue happens and peace gets established and you share love. This is one of the most overlooked and important aspects of communion. Here's the thing. If you're not living at peace with your fellow man, your heart grieves God as you take these elements. I'm not trying to minimize the pain others have caused you. I know that some people in this world have done great injustices against you. My point is not to say, oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that bad. It was probably heinous. It was probably a kick below the belt, much worse than anything you and your flesh can tolerate. And in regular life, it's hard to find any reservoir of mercy to extend forgiveness to those people who have hurt you so badly. And you, you nurse that bitterness and somehow justify it. And you say to God even, who wouldn't understand the way I feel? Who, would not, who wouldn't forgive me for the way I feel? Those people are terrible. But at this table, you have to leave that aside. If there is any place on earth where you can find the power to forgive the worst of offenders against you, it is at this table where you come as you are, remembering how you yourself dared to ask forgiveness when you did not deserve to have it. If you can forget mercy at this table and hold your bitterness against another human being, then you have a long way to go in understanding why this body was broken and this blood was spilled for us.
God is not interested in our sycophantic approach to Him. Telling Him with cooing words how much we love Him and seething underneath with how much we hate our fellow man. That is not the kind of family that this Father is putting together. And as we take these elements in the quiet moment of reflection, we must take stock of just how seriously we approach the peace we're supposed to have with our fellow man because of what these things symbolize for us. I don't want to run out of time, so I'm going to ask you to bow with me for a moment of prayer. And then I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask as I pray for Pastor Frank and Chris and Young to step forward and join me up here at the front of the room. And we're just going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you row by row to come and take the elements. And as you get the elements, I'm going to ask you to hold them and don't take them yet. Don't eat them or drink them until I give you the go-ahead. But after you return to your seats, I'm going to invite you to just go through the examining process in your heart. Why don't we pray together? God, we're asking that as we examine our hearts, you will shine a light on the deepest parts of it, the darkest parts. Help us now to approach this table with empty hands, daring not to bring a single one of the things we think we've done that makes us better people, but trusting alone in the saving work of Jesus, his broken body, and his shed blood for us. And God, this is so difficult to ask, but we ask you for the grace to help us forgive our enemies and those who have done wrong against us. That at this table of forgiveness where your family dines together, give us the power to put aside our anger and our bitterness and let mercy flow. Set us free from the hatred that is starting to define our lives and darkening the horizon. And instead, teach us to live like Jesus, forgiving freely, loving generously. For at this table, that is what you call us to do. And as we take this simple bread and this simple cup, transform it in our hearts so that we will understand what these things represent. Let our hearts be crushed by the meaning of it. In Jesus' name, amen.